stand right now and pray as we begin to get into the Word of God. Lord Jesus, I pray that this seed would fall on good soil and that this seed would take sprout and it would live and it would grow and it would bear fruit for eternal life. All for your glory's sake. Please help us, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, you may be seated. Who here knows how, what a ship ballast is? Ship ballast, okay. Uh, ship ballast, for those of you that might have never heard, it's kind of these compartments on the bottom of a ship. And the purpose of it is the ship actually itself, imagine a plastic or styrofoam cup, right? If you put the plastic or styrofoam cup on water, what's going to happen with that cup? Go ahead, you can say it. It will fall over, right? It will fall over because its center of gravity is way too high, right? Now, if you have ever loaded it with rocks before or with, you know, a lot of water but not fully with water, it'll actually weigh down and it'll stay afloat, right, in the water. That's what a ship ballast is for, is you fill, it up, you fill the ship up with water, especially when it doesn't have a lot of cargo, so that way the ship, because it's tall, it doesn't fall over in the water. And especially when there's heavy weather, the crew will pump in even more water into the ship in order to bring the ship center of gravity even lower in order to not tip over in the most extreme of weathers. Now, God gives us a spiritual ballast. He gives us this ballast in his word in order for us to be able to endure the storms that we experience in life. So let's read about that now. And it's, we're going to read it from Romans 8, 31. Let's start together. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being, called, being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? These are precious, precious words that God has left behind for us. Let's just look verse by verse. Let's start with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul, as we will see in these verses, he's using the greater to lesser argument. You're going to hear this multiple times. Greater to lesser argument. He's saying, 
if the one who is most powerful, the all-powerful God, is for us, then does it really matter who is against us? Does it matter if the devil and if this whole world are against us because in comparison to God, they are as nothing? Church, I'm here to remind all of us, including myself, that God, the almighty God, he is for us. He's not against us. He is for you. He is for me. God is not some idol or some statue, you know, that we come to constantly and we're serving and we're talking to the statue and we're doing all these things to the statue and the statue's just standing there, just idly, right? Present, but doesn't do anything. No, God is for us. He is on our side. He is on our team. And so the next question is, how exactly is he for us? What proof do we have that God is for us? And we see that in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, Paul is continuing the greater to lesser argument. He's saying, if God is for us, Who can be against us? If God gave us Jesus, then what else could he possibly hold back from us? Church, just think about it. If he gave us the one who was most precious to his soul, what else could he possibly hold back from us? We have an assurance here from God. That he will always, always, always give us what is ultimately good for me, for you. Since he has already given us Jesus, who is our ultimate good. Jesus Christ, coming to know who Jesus is, is the best thing that could ever happen to anyone sitting here or anywhere in the world right now. And God has freely given up him to us, the one who who cost him everything. Jesus cost God everything, and he didn't hold him back. So how will he hold back anything else? This passage, it's ultimately about assurance, right? And the argument here, if you follow it, What Paul is saying, in other words, if God has paid so much to ransom us, to save us from our sins, if God has paid such a great price, then how will he not also with him pay for the shipping costs, right? To bring us safely home, to be with him. How will he not? He will. That's the answer, right? Verse 33 goes on to say, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Church, it is God, the almighty God, all-powerful, all-knowing God, who declares us to be righteous. That's what justified means. In the courtroom of the universe, as we stand before him completely exposed, knowing all of our sins, knowing everything, God looks at us and he says, you are not guilty. You're not guilty. 
All your sins are forgiven because of Christ. And, and, and since God is the one who declares us to be righteous, then Paul, again, continuing this argument from the greater to the lesser, he says, if God is the one who justifies then who else can bring any sort of accusation or any sort of charge against us? You see, in this country, if you commit a crime and you get prosecuted for the crime, you can go to the court of appeals, right, to a higher court. And, and if that doesn't work, you can ultimately appeal to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court reviews your case and says you are not guilty, the prosecution cannot prosecute you any longer for that crime. The highest court in the whole country has declared you to be not guilty. God does not preside over simply the Supreme Court of the United States of America. God presides over the supreme court of the entire universe, of all creation. And God is the most righteous judge that there is. He has never compromised, nor can he compromise justice. And not only that, God knows everything, down to the smallest detail, from the very first atom that was created to the very last one that will be destroyed, and everything in between. God has a detailed 3D recording of all events. Every single nanosecond is captured in his mind. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight. Every single one of our sins are tracked, numbered, and labeled. All the ones we can't even ever remember, he's aware of all of it. And we are reminded that he, he, the incorruptible, the high judge, the one who knows everything about us, he is the one who also justifies us. The devil in Revelation 12 is called the accuser of the brothers. He's the one that brings the accusations before God about the brothers. He wants to present something to God that will result in us being condemned. And yet, God is the one who has already justified us. There is nothing new that we can surprise God with, church. God knows all things. And when God is the one who justifies, the devil has no one greater or higher to appeal to. That's what Paul is saying. There is no higher court of appeals. The buck stops with God, and God says, you are righteous. You are made right. You are justified. So one thing I want to point out here. Some people, when they hear the good news, they hear that God made a perfect world, and then we sinned, ruining that world, and God, being a good judge, he has to punish evil, Right? Some people hear this and they think God is some vindictive, almost like this bloodthirsty person who just wants to punish evil, right? Just, just squish it all. And yes, God does desire to put evil to an end. He has to. That's a part of him being good. That's what being good means. And if he wouldn't, he wouldn't be good. But... God in his love, which we're preaching about today, does not allow his goodness, his perfect goodness to destroy us. God instead 
pursues us. And God has thought of a way. God has made a way through Jesus so that we can be forgiven. Notice it doesn't say Jesus is the one who justifies. The Father, he's angry and he wants to punish us, but then Jesus comes and and he justifies us. No, it says that God, God, the entire Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all of them came together to put together the plan of salvation for all of us. Truly, church, God is for us. God is not against us. God is not against you. He's not sitting up there in heaven with a thunderbolt just waiting for you to make the wrong move so he can strike you down. That is not who God is. That's not who we're reading about. God is for us. God justifies us. And then verse 34, going on, and says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, we see the greater to lesser argument. Christ, Paul says, Christ has died for us. It's not you know, some Johnny living down the street that died for all of us, right? It's Jesus Christ. It's the Son of God who has died for us. Psalm 49 verse 7 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. But God the Son can pay the price for our life. Amen? The life of the most precious one was paid for us. And look, it doesn't just stop there. It says that he was didn't just die, he was raised, right? It's easy to say, oh, this person's death paid for your sins, right? You could say that about anybody's death. Oh, this person that died, you know, last week, their death paid for your sins. It's easy to say that someone's death paid for someone's sin. But God proves that Christ's sacrifice was accepted that the payment was satisfactory, that the deal is now sealed by raising Christ from the dead. That is our proof. That's our assurance that my sins are forgiven, that Christ has been raised. You see, remember that story? Not not story, it was a real, real event in the life of Jesus. When Jesus was teaching in the house and people couldn't get to him and some friends had a paralytic and they couldn't walk through the crowd, so they lower him down through the roof, right? And what is the first thing that Jesus told them? He said, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes look at him, he's like, he's blaspheming, right? At that point, you don't see anything that happened. You don't see the change that occurred in that man. You don't see anything. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he said, what's easier, right? To say, get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. Of course it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't prove it here on earth. And he says, but so that you may know that his sins are forgiven, that the Son of God has the authority to forgive sins, rise, get up, take your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home as a way to demonstrate, to prove that his sins were forgiven. And that event was a foreshadow of what Christ was going to do on our behalf. Christ also rose, just like that paralytic, to prove that our sins are forgiven. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven, but only Christ has proven that. Church, this is a very important point, that our assurance of my sins being forgiven, it's not found in us. 
It's not in here. Our assurance, our seal, our guarantee is in the risen Christ. Look to Jesus for assurance, not to yourself. Look to Christ. And look, here's the best part. It says, he who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. That is the closest, the most privileged, the most honored position that there is. And we read in 1 Kings 2, Solomon was ruling and reigning, and his mother, whom he loved, sat at his right hand. And when she asked him for something, he said, ask, I will not deny you. You see, Jesus isn't just hanging out right now in heaven, just, you know, enjoying himself, enjoying the victory he had on earth. No, he's at the right hand of God, and he has a mission, and that is to intercede on our behalf. The word intercede comes from two Latin words, intercede. Inter means in between, to go in between, and seed means to go. So to go in between. Christ is coming between us and the Father, and he's vouching for us. He's using his high and most honorable position for our advantage, for our forgiveness. So to sum all of this up, church, the judge is on our side. We've got the best lawyer on the case. And the greatest price in the whole world that has ever been paid for anything has been paid for you and for me. These are the assurances that scripture gives us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. First thing I want to pay attention to is this word, who. Notice it says, who. Right? That means it's not just random events, bad events that are happening to us, but there is a spiritual being, there's a spiritual world of spiritual entities who want to break our faith, who want to separate us from the love of Christ. They want to. And remember in the Gospels when Jesus was predicting the denial of Peter, he tells him, Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. In other words, he wants to pull you through a keyhole. He wants to destroy your faith. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You see, even with the intention of the whole world, wicked world that wants to destroy our faith, the answer is no one can. People in this world, they will make bad plans against us to hurt us, but it doesn't matter because it relates to verse 31. If God is for us, then does it really matter who is against us who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Let's think about the logic that's being presented here. It's very important to think through the logic of Scripture. How is it that persecution and famine and nakedness, how can they try to separate me from the love of Christ? How, how, does, how does that mechanism work, right? How do I get separated by these things? 
In the sense that if Christ sees me experiencing persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, that he will no longer love me? Is that, is that the pros- logic being presented here? No, right? That's why, why, why would Jesus stop loving me if I experienced a hardship, right? Then, then nobody would be saved. What's the logic here? I think the only logic that makes sense here is to mean that those things try to put pressure on us so that we would turn away from God because of those things. I'm sure that the early Christians to whom Paul was writing to, they were very worried about this. They were worried, just like us, that we might turn away from God if the persecution gets bad enough, right? That's a legitimate worry. That we might turn away from God if the financial difficulties get bad enough, right? Naked, f- nakedness, famine, health problems. What if my depression gets so bad, my anxiety gets so bad, or a million other tribulations that we experience that? What if it gets so bad that I just completely turn away from God? It's a very real worry. That those things will ultimately break our faith. And Paul addresses this. And he also quotes the Old Testament. He says from Psalms, he's saying, look, the people of God have experienced tribulation and persecution the entire time. Beginning from Abel all the way to us, people, the people of God have been persecuted, have, been, have gone through tribulation and sword and famine and all these problems to try to break their faith. He's saying, church, it's okay. You're not the first ones to go through this. It's been going on the entire time, and God has been sustaining his remnant throughout the history of the world. You might die in the process, but nothing shall separate you from the love of God. That's what he's saying. And then notice what he says in verse 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He gives us the answer to his question in verse 35. Can persecution, can famine, sword, can those things separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is in verse 37. No, they can't. They cannot. This is the logic of Scripture here, church. In fact, not only can they not separate us from the love of Christ, but in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Now, what is this phrase, more than conquerors? What does it mean? Well, what is a conqueror? A conqueror is someone who defeats, right? Someone who overcomes, someone who destroys the enemy. So what does it mean to be more than a conqueror, right? How does it, what does it mean specifically to be more than a conqueror through Christ in all of these bad things, whether famine, persecution, danger, sword? And I think the answer is found in verse 29 of the same chapter. Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, again, that love for God, love by God, all things work together for good. 2 Corinthians 4.17 also says, For this light momentary affliction, that's a problem, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What we see in both of these passages is that the problems that threaten our faith today 
are actually being used by God to create good for us. So not only will we overcome these problems, what the Word of God is promising us, so imagine you're living in medieval ages, you know, and you're a mayor of a little town, and, and you're living peacefully in your farm, and all of a sudden an army comes up against you, and they want to k- kill all your people, they want to enslave you, they want to take all your stuff. So what do you do? You go to arms, right? And you fight back. And imagine you fight back, and you actually win the battle. You're a conqueror. You might have lost all your men, but you won, right? Heavy losses, but you still won. You're still a conqueror. But to be more than a conqueror means not only did you not lose any men in the battle, but you wiped out their whole army. You took all the stuff that they brought, so now you're even, you have even more wealth, and now they need to pay you taxes every single month because they dared to try to attack you, right? That's what more than a conqueror means. It means you're better off after this problem than when you first started Christ takes all of these problems that try to break our faith and he will use them for our good. God's enemies will ultimately serve God's purposes. God is so powerful. God is so wise, the one who is for us, that his enemies will not only be defeated, but they will play into his plan perfectly on the dime, on the dot. So church... Let us marvel, let us marvel at the wisdom and the power and the love of God. What this world and the devil, what they mean against us for evil, God is using it for our good. Instead of breaking our faith, these trials will build our faith. 1 Peter 1 talks about our faith being tested by fire right? Fire is painful. Fire is hot. But the fire will only serve to prove the genuineness of our faith, just like fire only serves to prove the genuineness of the gold that goes through the fire. The fire will only purify our faith through the one who has loved us. Our trials bring us good. They humble us. They build character. They deepen our trust in the Lord. You know what these trials do? when, When we stray and we start looking at the world and we see the shiny things of the world, you know what the trials do? They 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 take our gaze off the world and they put our eyes back onto Jesus. And that's how Jesus uses these trials for our good. They chisel away the imperfections that we have to further conform us to the image of the Almighty Son of God. That is the purpose. That is God's purpose for our trials in this life. Yes, it will hurt. It will hurt. But God promises that we will be more than conquerors. The Greek literally says hyper-conquerors. Hyper-conquerors, right? Remember in the Old Testament, a great story about this is Joseph. His brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. They sold him into slavery. They thought he was dead. He became a slave. He got betrayed again. He went and became a prisoner. He was forgotten by the people that he helped. Like everything just kept getting from bad to worse, bad to worse, bad to worse. And then one day God set him to rule over the superpower nation at that 
And because of that position, God was able to save the entire chosen people of God, Israel, through the famine. And so as his brothers came to him, fear that he would kill them all after their father died, they tried to ask for forgiveness. And he said in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil. It was real evil. But God meant it for good. God meant that evil for good. That's what you call more than a conqueror. He didn't just survive. He thrived through the trials. So not only, and also, it's very important to note, not only will our trials bring good for us here, but through him who has loved us, through Jesus Christ, these trials are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Church, just, just rest in that. Embrace that. Hold fast to that. Let your soul hold on to God's promises. Meaning, the reward being prepared there because of the sufferings here is so good that you can't even put them next to each other. That's what the Word of God says. You can't even compare them together. And I know this might sound silly, but because it will be incomparably good, when we get to heaven... We're probably going to look at our sufferings and we're going to look at the eternal weight of glory that was prepared through those sufferings and we're going to say, I wish I suffered a little more, right? No, we should not seek out suffering. We should not seek out persecution. Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We should not do those things. But why I highlight this incomparable nature of the reward and the sufferings is that we need to remember that in all of our sufferings here on earth, whatever they may be, we are more than conquerors through them. But we have to embrace it. We have to embrace it. Verse 38 says, and I, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hold on to this promise, church. Jesus says the same exact words in John 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And some people might respond saying, well, all these things, they can't separate us, but our sin can and they're right. If we continue to live in unrepentant sin, we will perish. If we live in faithlessness, we will not be saved. Colossians 1.23 says, If indeed you continue in the faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Only those who keep the faith until the end will be saved. The Bible is extremely clear on this topic. 
And if you think you can delude yourself thinking you are safe and not care about God and not live by faith, you are not safe. These assurances, these promises, they're not for you. They're for those who have faith in God. But what Paul is saying here in Romans 8 is that there is nothing and there is no one in all of creation that can ultimately break real faith that we have in God. Why? Because of the one who has loved us. Nothing can mislead God's saints into sin so far that we will be lost forever. In verse 35, he basically asks the question, what can break my faith so totally that I would be separated from the love of God? And I'm sure, again, as the Christians back in that day, just as today, they were worried that, that what if things get so bad? What if my marriage just completely falls apart? Will I still love God? Will I still cling to God? They were so worried that they would turn away from God when things get tough. And that's why in verse 35, he says, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Those things want to break our faith, but they won't. They want to, but they won't. And so he adds to the list of those things that try to break our faith and turn us away from God and separate us from God. He says, death nor life. Let's look at that. Death nor life. He's saying nothing as horrible as death itself. The loss of all things, the loss of everything here, even at the threat of death, we cannot be separated from God's love. Or life, the complete opposite, right? The greatest things that this world has to offer in all of its temptations and all the great promises and pleasures and opportunities. But he says even the greatest things in this life cannot ultimately separate us from the love of God if we truly love God and are loved by God. Then he goes on to say, nor angels, nor rulers. I'm sure the angels he's talking about here are not good angels. <laughs> They're the bad angels, right? The good ones won't try to separate us. And what he's saying is even the most powerful and wicked spirits, they cannot separate us from God's love. Even the most powerful rulers and governments cannot separate us from God's love, nor things present, meaning nothing that currently exists. Look around, everything that you see, everything that actually exists, it can't separate us from God's love. And then, in case there was any doubt, he says, nor things to come, meaning even whatever comes in the future. You know, sometimes you think, like, what if one day they think of some crazy torture method, right, for Christians, and they, and they put you through that, like, will I still cling to God? God says, even the things to come won't separate you from the love of God. What if there's some new forms of temptation, right? Technology, it's constantly evolving. There's, it's, it's getting crazier and crazier every decade. It'll just be too good to resist. Nor things to come. God assures us that even the future is in his hands. And everything that is waiting for us there is not capable of separating us from the love of God. 
God, nor height nor depth, meaning you can search low, you can search high, and you will never find something that can separate you from God's love, nor anything else in all creation. And just to make sure it's perfectly, abundantly, crystal clear, Paul repeats himself again. He says, there's nothing in all creation. You know, the only thing or person that exists outside creation is who, church? Who exists outside creation? God. He's the only one that exists outside creation. Everything else, including us, are a part of creation. And he says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of the one who sits outside of creation. Church, just take a moment to soak in the promises of God. Rest in God's unstoppable love, relentless, infinitely committed love towards his people. Here we have the true promise of God. Cherish it. Lay it up in your heart. Cling to it. And yes, by faith we are holding on to God. We have to. But don't forget that God is also holding on to you. He's holding on to you. He is the one who has loved us while we were still yet sinners, Romans 5, 8. We love because he loved us first, 1 John 4, 19. And now nothing can separate us from his love. There is no accusation. There is no charge that can be presented before God to make him second guess his love for us. He already knows all of it. He's already covered all of it. He's paid for all of it. And Jesus is at the right hand of God, actively interceding for us. And believe me, if Jesus asks for something, he will receive it. And so we will be in heaven because Jesus wants us to be there with him and the Father will grant his request because he's telling the Father right now, I love them. We read in John 17 as Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, Father, I desire that they would be with me there to see the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world. That's in the heart of Jesus towards his people. He longs for us to see his glory and he's asking the Father, he's interceding right now, that we would be there with him one day and see his glory. And we will, because the Father will hear his request. Very important note. There's somebody sitting here, hearing this, and you think, you mean I could do whatever I want because nothing can separate me from the love of Christ? Like, I can sin any way I want. I can live however I want. I can indulge in sin right after church. I, I, I'm good, right? Because I'm safe and secure in the Father's hand. Everything's been paid. I've got a blank check. If someone seriously is thinking in that direction and desiring sin as a result of hearing about the love of God, I don't think you've understood the love of God to begin with. I'm not sure that person 
If there's someone here like that that is saved, if that's where your true desires are, not for God, but for sin, church, the assurances of God that he gives us are not a license for sin. Let me be clear about that. They are an assurance that we will ultimately live a faithful and holy life before God. Yes, we will stumble. We all stumble in many ways, James says. But ultimately, we will keep that faith. That's what the assurances are here. The assurances, they're not a ticket that we find in our pocket and we present to God as we stand before heaven's gates. The assurances are the food that our soul consumes, that we need in order to have the strength to truly live a holy life and therefore prove that we had real faith. Let me say that again. The assurances that God gives us in his word, they are the food that we need to have the strength to live a truly holy life and therefore Prove that we had real faith. And on the basis of that faith, we will enter into eternal life. The assurances of God's love are given to strengthen us, to keep us going, no matter how thick the problems are right now. The assurances are given to not to cast us down, but to lift us up, church. If you have yet to come to know the love of Christ that we've been talking about today, this is a call for you to turn to God. Turn from your sins, repent, and trust in Christ. Come, pray with us. We'll stop the service. Pray with us, but be set free. Follow him all the days of your life. As I call the band up, I want to finish on this last note. It says, we are more than conquerors, not on our own, but through him who loved us. Church, our assurance does not rest in us, but in God's work. Our assurance rests in God's justification, in Christ's intercession, in Christ's love for us. God has declared me righteous in his eyes. Jesus, who has paid for me, is interceding on my behalf. Jesus loves me. God has paid an infinite price for me. How can anything ever ultimately separate me from God? Does this mean life will be easy? No, that's not what the promise here is about. Tribulation is hard. Persecution is really hard. Famine, nakedness, it's hard. Life is full of temptation. The future holds many new temptation. Angels and rulers, they want to break our faith. They want to separate us. It will be hard. Jesus promises that. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But we know, we've seen the end, God's shown us the end, that despite the onslaught that is coming towards us, despite this world's attempts to either lure us away with pleasures or to break our faith with troubles, ultimately nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And instead, 
God will use all of these trials and temptations to build our faith so that we can be more than conquerors. God will use all these things thrown at us and use them to work together for our good and to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen and amen. Let's stand right now. We're going to have just a minute of quiet response time. Just meditate on the love of God, God's relentless love for us. Meditate on his sacrifice on our behalf. If you have not yet come to know him, cry out to him. Put your trust in him. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We thank you. We fall before you, Lord, for all that you've done for us and all that you're continuing to do for us. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your love, for your commitment to us. And I pray that we would live holy and faithful lives for your glory, God. That we would receive strength to live a life pleasing to you, Lord. Please help us. Please be with us until you lead us home to be with you forever and ever. Lord, we thank you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.